0: The Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Megan Messerly. Uh, each week we talk about matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming up. We're a nonprofit news site that can be found at thenevadaindependent.com. I am joined today by my colleagues, Riley Snyder and Jackie Valley. Hi, guys. Hi, Megan. Hey, Megan. So today we have a a lot to talk about, a long list of things, Um, you know, for a a week in September, there was a a lot going on, uh, gearing up for the 2018 election, even though it's only September of 2017, it's not been a quiet summer by any means, but we got some clarity this week on a candidate who's not running for a different office than the one she's currently in, Riley, can you fill us in?
1: Oh, I'm sorry you said uh, she because I was going to make a joke about (laughs) Ralston not running for Senate. Um, So Dina Titus, as we've talked about before, uh, she's a congresswoman, represents Nevada's first congressional district, been around the state for a long time, spent 20 years in the state Senate, sort of had a a very public, open thought process about running for Senate even before and even after Jackie Rosen, a fellow congresswoman, had declared for Senate, got a bunch of endorsements from folks like Emily's List, NARAL, the, the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. And so Dina had just sort of stayed in the race, not really gotten all the way in or all the way out, and she finally announced this week she was going to run for re-election to her congressional seat. This is big for a lot of reasons. It keeps Titus in that congressional seat, We're still continuing to build up presumably um, seniority and, and get more influence if Democrats ever take back control of the House. It makes things a lot easier for Democrats and for Jackie Rosen especially because it clears up probably the, what would have been the biggest primary challenge. Jackie Rosen really doesn't have a lot of political history, a lot of name recognition in Nevada. Dina Titus has been a known political figure in here since the 1980s. So it really helps her out and kind of clears the path forward for for Democrats going at least into the primary.
0: Right. So how does, talk to our our listeners a little bit about how Harry Reid factors into this in terms of his relationship to both Jackie Rosen, who is running for Senate, and to Dina Titus.
1: Sure. So for um, non-Nevada political nerds, Harry Reid sort of recruited and pulled Jackie Rosen into running for Congressional District 3 last cycle. It's a very tough district. It's very split between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, She was a synagogue president, had no other political experience, which is sort of kind of plucked from obscurity and, you know, elevated into this role, and now she's running for Senate. So he had really uh, backed her, as you reported, Megan. He really encouraged her to run for the Senate seat. And what's interesting is that Dina Titus is this, sort of this weird anomaly in Nevada Democratic political world because she is not like a in the Reed camp. She's sort of out there on her own. She's formed her own identity. She's formed kind of her own group and, and backing. And so as our editor, John Ralston, who is – not here. The, the the two week coup continues with uh, no editors on the podcast. <laughs> can uh, do what we want. <laughs> yeah, no rules. Um, so as he uh, reported this week, um, Reid called Titus. I think a few weeks ago to try to smooth things over. You know, the entire congressional delegation endorsed Rosen as soon as she announced, um, despite Titus still publicly mulling a bid. So. It, it's been sort of an interesting back and forth between these like behind the scenes figures and sort of playing out in the public and sort of playing out behind the scenes.
0: Right. And so like you mentioned, this, you know, makes things a lot easier for Jackie Rosen. She doesn't have to deal with a, a bitter Democratic primary that obviously, you know, just stirs up a lot of, you know, campaign ads and and sort of starts the battle really early. So it's going to be a little bit easier for her, um, you know, getting through that primary, though there's obviously other Democratic candidates. I was wondering, though, if you could talk to us a little bit about how that's sort of going to compare to what we're. Going to see on the Republican side with Dean Heller and Danny Tarkanian. Yeah,
1: there's no Republican Harry Reid at least <laughs> yet in Nevada. So uh, Senator Dean Heller, the incumbent, everyone's keeping an eye on him, is facing a primary challenge from Danny Tarkanian. Um, this guy who's run this, the son of Jerry Tarkanian, run for office six times, um, always come close but never gotten there all the way. He's continuing to just throw bombs. He had a bunch of um, press releases, campaign emails, tweets. His staff and Heller staff are going back and forth. So. That's promising to be like at least one of the most entertaining and one of the the closest fought primary battles, and I think Danny is especially you know encouraged by Roy Moore winning in that Alabama special election, defeating Luther Strange, the incumbent senator. Steve Bannon had backed Moore, is backing Danny. I'm sure we're going to start seeing some of these groups pouring money in to help uh, to help Tarkanian and. This will be a very fun primary to watch between now and June.
0: Definitely, and we'll be watching it very closely. You can check out all of our ongoing coverage on the website. Uh, we'll have lots of stories on all the fun primary battles to come. Um, I wanted to turn to something else that happened in Washington this week in this ongoing healthcare saga. Something that I wrote about: um, the Graham Cassidy bill is finally, you know, laid to rest, at least for now. Again, you know, one one never knows, but um, there was a hearing on that bill on on Monday in the Senate. Finance Committee, you know, a lot of tough questions from Democrats about, you know, the funding levels. There was a new version of the bill that was released on Monday, um, publicly made some changes to the funding formulas to try and, you know, help some of the states that uh, they were trying to get their senators on board, like Alaska. Um, so we saw those changes come in. There was this hearing. Um, Senator Dean Heller sort of read this prepared statement for, for five minutes and asked some questions back and forth with uh, Senator Cassidy, um, one of the, the bill's sponsors, asking him, you know, is this going to result in Nevada, uh, you know, gaining more funding? And, you know, he he. Cassidy basically said, you know, absolutely yes and there were still analyses coming out at the same time saying, you know, maybe this is a little less worse than for Nevada than previous proposals of this legislation, but at the end of the day, it's still not going to be great because of these, you know, per capita caps it puts on this um, Medicaid program. Um, but we heard there was an announcement on on Monday that um, Senator Susan Collins from Maine would not be supporting the bill; she would vote no on it, which effectively killed the bill. There were two other senators, John McCain and Rand Paul, already opposed to it, so it effectively, you know, sent it um, to its grave. And now the Senate is moving on to its next topic, which is tax reform. So you no, know, this is never really laid to rest. It always comes back up. We thought it was mostly laid to rest and, at the end of July, and it popped up, popped back up again in uh, September. So, you know, we'll see what's going to come. You know, Republicans have said that this isn't, you know, it's not over. Um, It's going to come back up. It's just a question of when.
1: Can you talk, Megan, maybe a little bit about how Dean Heller has sort of arrived to where he is on this health care bill? As many people know, like he was there with uh, Governor Sandoval, and they sort of tried to plant a flag, and then he sort of jumped on this Graham-Cassidy amendment, which no one at all reported on when it did happen during uh, the end of July, other than (laughs) you, of course. Um, But just sort of just for listeners, maybe to, to get a sense of how he's arrived at where he is and sort of what he's doing going forward in terms of healthcare policy.
0: Yeah. So as people might remember, there was this sort of prominent press conference back in June with Senator Heller standing alongside Governor Brian Sandoval to announce Heller's opposition to the Senate Republicans' original repeal and replace proposal that known as the Better Care Reconciliation Act. Um, You know, the governor and Heller both had a lot of concerns about the changes it made to Nevada's Medicaid expansion. Concerns there being, you know, that this has helped fill in, you know, a coverage gap for so many low-income individuals, and, you know, it's allowed the state to sort of shift the way it, it provides services, particularly mental health services. The governor's been a big proponent of it, so they were basically emphasizing, you know, we, we don't want a bill, a bill that's going to kick people off of insurance, that's going to kick people off of, of Medicaid. And then it's, you know, been this conversation that's that's gone on. There have been revisions to that bill. In July, um, there were several proposals that came up. The the BICRA proposal, um, a full repeal, just clean repeal, getting rid of the Affordable Care Act as a blank slate to move forward, a skinny repeal. Um, and Dean Heller's taken a number of different positions on those. He voted for opening the discussion on healthcare back in July, which you know a lot of people were not happy with because sort of none of the proposals on the table seemed you know particularly you know solvent or you know good for the state of Nevada at least in the, the governor's mind at the time. And so he, you know, voted against, he voted, ended up voting against uh, both, you know, Bikra and the full repeal of the Affordable Care Act, but he did support a skinny repeal. And it all sort of fell apart, as people will know, with with John McCain's, you know, vote on the floor saying, being the third vote, saying he would vote against it. But amid all of that, like you mentioned, he said that he would support this um, Graham-Cassidy proposal, you know, saying that the funding would be more for Nevada, that it would give states flexibility to spend dollars how they want. Nevada could continue its Medicaid expansion program if it wanted to to the governor then came out against that and said, you know, no, we're, we're not going to get more funding. We have concerns. You know, he said uh, reduced flexibility with reduced funding is a false choice. Um, had some pretty strong words for the, the measure. So it's it's been a lot of back and forth for, for Dean Heller trying to figure out, you know, what bill is going to be good for Nevada. And a lot of this has just been so fast moving. There hasn't been a lot of time for the state and outside organizations to do their own analyses, um, you know, which I think makes it difficult for Heller or any other senator to really be able to make an informed decision. So we'll have to keep watching and see what's up next with, with all of that when whenever it comes mm-hmm. back up again. <laughs> Another big uh, big topic this week um, was pot, today in pot. There was a big announcement about revenue from the first month of sales of marijuana. Can you fill us in on what happened, Riley?
1: Yes. Um, our normal marijuana reporter, Michelle Rendell's is at a Taco Bell loss somewhere. So she's <laughs> not able to provide an update um, today. But Marijuana sales uh, were looking good. Um, So the Department of Taxation, which sort of administers the recreational marijuana program, released the first month of sales. You kind of had to extrapolate it because they didn't have the actual sales figure. They just had the tax revenue. But I think it's estimated that the first month brought in about $27 million, which has a lot of the people in the pot world really excited because there's a lot of jurisdictions that didn't set up their ordinances and sort of their rules for recreational marijuana by the July 1st uh, early start date. So, like Reno wasn't selling marijuana, Henderson wasn't selling marijuana, and still we got to $27 million in sales, which is more than Colorado had, which is more than Washington had. And I think it's a teeny bit above what the state had sort of expected to bring in in terms of tax revenue. A lot of this money is going to the state's rainy day fund. There was a big uh, kind of like quirk, I guess is probably the best way to put it, in, in the legislative process where that money was supposed to go to education. Now it's going to the rainy day fund. But, you know, for the most part, um, a lot of the marijuana folks are. Are very happy. There, there's some concern that there was a lot of excitement. It was sort of like the New Year's ball dropping. Everyone wants to go and be out till four in the morning, smoking pot. And of course, that was the only time that's ever happened in the history of Las Vegas. <laughs> but um, you know, there's other special events where you know sales will increase. There is sort of this ongoing question of getting the right level of taxation and making sure that you're not driving people to the black market because prices are too high. But for the time being, I think the, the state's happy. The pot people are happy. Certainly the potheads are happy uh, with with how things have gone since uh, legalization where recreational sales started um, right. this summer.
0: And I, th- I think there's some desire in the future, right, for some of this money to go toward education. Like you mentioned, there was this sort of procedural way things happened at the end of the session that, that meant that money – couldn't end up going to the official you know education you know pool of money but there's still some hope that that would happen in the future right
1: yeah and you know they're sort of like a wink and a nudge that like hey this money's gonna go to education like it just has to kind of do this because we screwed up in the last like 48 hours of our part-time legislative session and I know that that you know Jackie maybe you can weigh in on this yeah too.
2: I mean it'll be interesting to watch as we go into uh 2019 legislative session because uh, Superintendent Pat Skorkausi already came out against the way it's set up right now. Um, his argument is basically that the money or the revenue generated here by marijuana should stay in Clark County because um, as it's set up right now, it would ultimately flow back to Carson City and then be in the distributive school account, which is the pot of money that funnels dollars to all school districts in the state. So his contention is that, you know, look, there's a lot of counties and jurisdictions that don't even allow recreational marijuana. You know, we're the main breadwinner for this industry, um, so why don't we get to reap
0: the benefits, especially at a time when the school district's facing extreme budget cuts? Right. Hasn't there? Hasn't? Didn't he make the comparison, or someone make the comparison too about you know mining dollars going toward you know counties that you know have mining operations? So it should be sort of similar to that.
2: Yeah, that's been brought up as an argument too. I mean, it, it's obviously those people can make a, a a similar argument that you know maybe it's some of that money is coming back to us indirectly also so.
0: We'll see what happens going forward. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see how the how the future month's revenue, you know, stacks up and, and what this looks like. And it, that'll give the state a better idea, you know, next next budget cycle, you know, two years from now, figuring out how to exactly budget all this out and where the money should go. And I'm sure, you know, how much a share Clark County will get of it will be a, a huge part of that discussion. So on the topic of mm-hmm. the Clark County School District, Jackie, you were at a meeting very late last night uh, where there was, you know, ongoing discussion about, you know, possible budget cuts, what happened at the meeting?
2: Yeah, so I mean, this is uh, much like the health care debate in Washington. This uh, budget situation in Clark County has just been dragging on for much of the summer and into the fall now. So last night was supposed to be the third round of budget cuts. Uh, the school district has an estimated uh, $60 million shortfall. Um, but what they've been saying is they probably need to make cuts beyond that amount because the fiscal year is already underway. So they made two round of cuts so far. The first was $43 million in August. The second was about $14 million in mid September. So last night, they uh, the school district brought to the table a new proposal that would have cut upward of $4.1 million. The caveat with this one was that it really uh, disproportionately affected the support staff. Uh, those are people who are sometimes part-time, you know, not necessarily college degrees, but they may be custodians or uh, teacher's aides, that type of position. Uh, so they showed up in force really against this, saying, you know, look, like you... St- are saying this isn't going to affect schools and students, but we're sort of the backbone of the system. It keeps it running to a certain extent. Uh, so it was a really interesting turn of events. It was a very long meeting, uh, six hours, six plus hours to be exact. You were there the whole um,
0: time. I, I I woke up this morning and saw your tweets, you know, tweet <laughs> notifications. I was like, poor Jackie. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you know, it was actually interesting because there was a turn of events. Um, there was a lot of impassioned testimony from uh, parents. Uh, st- Teachers, staff members, um, even students—an autistic boy—got up there and talked about how he didn't want to see any more cuts to special education for the services that people like him relied on. So, you know, at one point in this meeting, at uh, trustee, uh, Linda Young, she has voted for first two budget cuts, but she came out and said, "You know, I straight up can't support this. I'm not going to vote for it." Uh, that was sort of music to the ears of two other trustees who've been very against the fiscal management by the district, um, and that's trustee Chris Garvey and trustee Kevin Child. They've been very critical of the way this whole budget situation has unfolded and think that there's just been some mismanagement at the top. And so it led to this discussion of, well, what else can we actually do? And what came about was a discussion of furlough days. So the board... In the first, one of the, its first unified actions in recent months, uh, voted to only accept some of the budget cuts that were proposed, but for the majority of the ones that would have affected support staff and, and a lot of the people positions, uh, they decided to instead direct the school district staff to try to negotiate furlough days with um, all the bargaining groups. So what they're saying is if the administrators, the teachers, the police, and the support staff agree to a furlough day across the board, that would save roughly $8 million. So the direction was ask for two furlough days, let's see what we can get and how we can curb some of these cuts. Uh, The caveat, and what will be interesting, is if the unions don't agree to this, then the school district will be facing even larger cuts because each day that goes by, they're getting more in debt. So it, it was a, a risky move in some ways, and we'll see how it um, pans out in the end. Right. Do we have any idea what the what the union's response is likely to be to this? You know, I, I talked to uh, Stephen Augsburger. He's, he's the executive director of the administrators union this morning. He was a little vague. He said, you know, I'd be happy to sit down and talk, but the fact is we need to have a frank discussion about revenue and expenses. Uh, he in particular has been really critical of Superintendent Pat Skorkowski um, and has called for him to not say out the duration of his contract. Skorkowski is retiring in June. So, he, I mean, he didn't outright say that they would totally put the thumbs down to this proposal. Uh, but he said, you know, we'd have to have a frank discussion about this. Um, I reached out to the Clark County Education Association, also that's the teachers union, and have not heard back. But interestingly, uh, Stephen Ogsberger said that he hasn't, he hadn't even, as of about 11:30 this morning, heard from. The superintendent or anyone else about the, at the district about the furloughs so
0: they hadn't even gotten the yeah ball, so they hadn't even gotten the, the gotten the ball <laughs> going at all and you know meanwhile the clock is ticking sure sure like you mentioned you know that the district's losing money and so we'll have to keep keep an eye on this and see how it progresses you know what the what the union's response ends up being
1: um, i can ask a question really quick oh, yeah. jackie sure. um there's sort of like this ongoing like meme from republicans and a few union folks about like a forensic audit of the clark county school district and there was some discussion last night from the the trustees about that right yeah
2: so that was the other big part of this meeting. Uh, for months now, um, trustee Kevin Child has been calling for a forensic audit of the district. And, you know, that mantra sort of been picked up by, as you mentioned, uh, at least one of the unions and some Republicans have called for this as well. But there, there's there been a little bit of debate about what a forensic audit actually means, um, because by some de- definitions, it involves looking into criminal activity. And so Finally, uh, last night, the trustees had a full discussion about whether they should pursue this. Uh, It was interesting because Trustee Lola Brooks, who's relatively new to the board, she usually doesn't speak hardly at all at these meetings, and she took a very hard stand. Uh, Her first question to Kevin Child was, what exactly do you mean by a forensic audit? Most people in the room, I think, would agree that he didn't really articulate it very specifically. He said, you know, I just want an open, honest, and very, very transparent process So she uh, kind of fired back and was like, well, look, you know, we're already in a precarious fiscal situation as it stands now. We're getting a lot of pushback from the community. She had separately reached out to a couple people who uh, conduct forensic audits and determined that it can cost anywhere from 3 to $5 million. And so she said, I don't know that this is the best decision. We're already getting a lot of pushback. Why would we do this now and just further indebt ourselves? So the bottom line was uh, the trustees agreed to at least pursue – what they're calling uh, an examination of internal financial controls. And so it's a little bit more specific than the general annual audit that they do. Um, And it would take a hard look at the processes and who is approving uh, money transfers and so on and so forth. In one of the next few meetings, uh, that'll come back with some more detail about what that may look like. And then, you know, if, if that goes through and there is some red flags or indications that maybe there has been more wrongdoing, That could lead to forensic audit, but it looks like at this point
0: that's been put to bed for now. We'll be keeping an eye on on all of those developments. Riley, I wanted to ask you about something that you covered this week. Um, you found out about a nonprofit that's been going after Envy uh, Energy, taking aim at them, um, and you unearthed who is behind this nonprofit. So fill our listeners in on
1: that. Yeah, this nonprofit is called the Nevada Independent. No, i <laughs> <Surprise, laughs> no, um, So, yeah, Envy Energy, the, the state's main utility, is going through what's called a general rate case. It's sort of this process that's required in state law where utilities, namely NV Energy, have to like put forward their proposed rates for everyone, all customers, businesses, individuals, single family, residents, all of that for the next three years. It gets a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down from the state's PUC, which is this appointed board that sort of oversees the electric market in the state. People have the opportunity to like bring public comment. And it's sort of like this big canvas where a lot of people can fight a lot of like different Little tiny pitched battles on different energy policy things. There's things I reported about last week about like public notification on like a, a 2% increase for general rates. But anyway, because I'm a big nerd, I, I read through all these <laughs> filings and I noticed there was a lot from this group called Smart Energy Alliance. And people who follow Nevada politics know that there's nothing that the state loves more than like creating these like very vaguely named buzzwordy sort of nonprofits <laughs> that are kind of backed by big money interest. So I was very curious about this group. They just kind of filed a motion to dismiss this general rate application entirely over these concerns about 704B companies. It's like a very wonky way to describe businesses that have applied and been accepted to leave Envy Energy as a customer. They have to pay an impact fee to like make up for the infrastructure they had planned for before, but they were sort of going to the defense of these 704B customers, which really it's MGM, Caesars, Wind Resorts, uh, Peppermill just applied for it. So it's a lot of like the big... Prominent gaming companies on the strip. So what I did was I went through all of their filings and their first one they Have to reveal in Nevada administrative code at least two of their members to be able to get into these cases their members were uh, switch the the big data center company that's also a 704 B customer and uh, This utility group based in the Northwest that sort of represents a lot of big energy users But don't necessarily have a lot of I guess stake in Nevada people like Intel people like Microsoft people like Boeing and so I reached out to attorneys for this group, I tried to get some more background. Um, this isn't necessarily unusual to like create a nonprofit to do this. This group was created just um, like a month after this general rate case was filed. But yeah, you know it's interesting because like they have had at least like one hearing granted on one of their motions. It's a way for Switch, this industry group that's representing these big energy customers, and maybe more. I, I don't know. The, their attorneys wouldn't say who their membership is. A few people didn't get back to me to say whether or not they're members or not. But you know, there's. A lot of, like, behind-the-scenes kind of things happening in energy policy, and you never really know, like, why people or who's behind groups that are putting forward these motions. So... Um if you want to read more about that it's on the nevadaindependent.com <laughs> got to always plug the website
0: <laughs> Well unlike you mentioned this isn't isn't entirely unusual to have you know a, gr- a broad group like this come before the PUC like the Alliance for Solar Choice right came before the PUC as a as a unified entity during all the discussions on solar last year right
1: Yeah so there was the whole issue with net metering but that's a little bit different because the Alliance for Solar Choice had a website they had like a big social media campaign we sort of knew it was like Sunrun and Solar City and all these right. um, companies behind them this group—I I should have mentioned this earlier. Smart Energy Alliance doesn't have a website, it has no social media presence. Like I did a Google search, and there was about four results, and it was like all these obscure energy companies in like Wyoming that had nothing to do with this. <laughs>
0: like this isn't right. Yeah, so
1: they—they they were just kind of came out of nowhere and started filing these things, and so I thought it was worth, you know, trying to show a little bit more transparency. So we're, we're recording this on a Friday. I think they're having a hearing on like resetting a procedural clock or some other somewhat boring. <laughs> Um, you know procedural motion, but yeah, you know it'll be interesting to see what, what happens. That's a, the general rate case will continue going on until about December.
0: Great. Well, Riley will be keeping an eye on all of that. Like he mentioned, you can check out all of all of those ongoings at thenevadaindependent.com. Jackie, read about something going back to going back to Washington. There's so much about Washington this week. The Las Vegas Metro Chamber of Commerce was in Washington this week. Um, what were they up to there? Yeah, so it was uh, their annual trip to DC.
2: Uh, it took a more than 100 people from a whole bunch of different sectors, gaming, local government, different businesses, uh, went with them. And they. It's, it's mostly a lobbying trip. They meet with the delegates, some lobbyists up there, have cocktail hours, and, and really get to make their case for what they think the priorities should be for Southern Nevada going forward. So one of the big items, and it has been for several years now, is Interstate 11. Uh, as most of you may know, that's the highway that... Hopefully one day we'll connect uh, Phoenix and Las Vegas. So on the Nevada side, you know, we have about 15 miles in progress that'll be completed in October. But Arizona, you know, has a lot more work to do. They're in the process of uh, creating a two-lane US 93 into a four-lane highway right now. Um, They're also doing some environmental studies. But there's a lot more work left on that side of the state before they can ultimately connect the two cities. So... They had an there's an Interstate 11 caucus actually in DC, and uh, they had a, a big reception on Tuesday night, and were you know just mingling and talking and trying to make their point known and drum up support for all this financing. But meanwhile, President Trump uh, made some interesting comments that could play a very big role in all of this. He of course during his campaign was big on all infrastructure projects, and he spoke about that quite a bit, and you know, one of the ways he described getting that done was entering into public-private partnerships. But on Tuesday, the same day all these Nevada folks were mingling with the power players in D.C. talking about Interstate 11, he came out and sort of reneged on that and said, you know what, I don't know if this will necessarily work. It may not be feasible. I really think that states and local municipalities are going to have to foot the bill for a lot of these infrastructure projects. So, of course, that's creating some unease among the transportation folks out here and in Arizona uh, because this is a billion, multi-billion dollar project that is going to be reliant on a lot of federal funds. And so now it's a little bit of wait and see. Of course, there's a lot of other aspects in motion right now. For instance, uh, in Southern Nevada, they're still trying to figure out where the route will go up from essentially south part of Henderson up through Las Vegas. So a lot of moving pieces, but, you know, that those comments from President Trump didn't exactly
0: make everyone feel super confident. Sure, yeah. I mean, that was one of, like you mentioned, that was one of the big themes of his campaign was, you know, infrastructure, and that was sort of a point, too, that even, you know, Democrats who obviously do not like Trump, do not agree with him, you know, Democrats in the congressional delegation here have at least said, you know, infrastructure, this is one area where we can work together, we're excited about, you know, infrastructure improvements and the jobs that it'll create and all of that, and so now there's a little bit more uncertainty with all of this. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it's laced with optimism, though. Um, I spoke with Tina
2: Quigley. She's the head of the Regional Transportation Commission out here. And she said, you know, you never know. Um, The good thing for the project is that it has broad bipartisan support from both states, and that extends into the business communities as well. So there's a lot of people rooting for this to be done. And, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. But at the same time, you know, everyone should start preparing themselves for other means of raising the
0: funding. Right, yeah. So we'll be keeping an eye on all of that to see, you know, when when that all of that happens. You know, it's obviously a, a slow process. Things, things like this take some time, so we will be keeping an eye on it. Another thing that happened this week, here in Nevada, there was an update in uh, the lawsuit filed by two major pharmaceutical lobbying organizations against the state over this uh, bill passed during the last legislative session. The sort of first in the nation insulin transparency law to try and get manufacturers of insulin and other essential diabetes drugs to disclose how their prices are set, you know, explain what rebates they give and how much of the actual profits they're keeping, how much they're spending on research and development. Pharma and uh, another group called Bio have challenged this law in court. And so the new development this week was that the legislature actually itself got involved. It filed a motion to intervene in the process saying, you know, it has a significant interest separate from the interests of the executive branch The governor, Brian Sandoval, and the director of the Department of Health and Human Services, Richard Whitley, are the named defendants in the lawsuit. But the legislature is basically asked to intervene and say, you know, we have an interest in, you know, defending the constitutionality of our laws. You know, legislative attorneys stood behind this law saying, you know, we believe it to be sound law and good law during the legislative session. So now they want to come before the court. There's a hearing coming up in a couple of weeks where um, the pharmaceutical groups are asking the court to issue a preliminary injury. on this measure. Certain parts of it are starting to take effect on a rolling basis. Some of the regulatory process is beginning and basically the pharmaceutical companies don't want any of that to go forward. They sort of want everything stopped while this court can work itself out uh, or this issue can work itself out in the courts. You know, the big issue here is the constitutionality of the law. Pharma's, you know, alleged in their complaint that this violates several provisions of the constitution and that it you know the law essentially creates a cap on pharmaceutical prices because of the way that it requires these disclosure requirements so we'll have to be keeping an eye on all of that i'll be um i'll be at that hearing and keeping an eye on all the developments in the case so we'll we'll see what happens next with that Another issue you covered, Riley. People have probably heard about the Equifax, you know, data breach that happened. But you wrote about how that could relate to voter registration here, which a lot of people might not necessarily draw that conclusion on their own. So, what's what's the link there?
1: Yeah, for Equifax and data breaches like that, like obviously most people are concerned that like you know you're going to get your credit card hacked or like your right. credit score just decimated because this company let 143 million Americans like information be accessible to hackers. But there is renewed kind of concern about people being able to change your voter registration online. And so there are 35 states, including Nevada, who allow you to go online, the Secretary of State's website, here is how you do it, and you can change your voter registration, change your party, change your address, do any of that. You have to have your driver's license, your social c- security number, like your uh, a zip code of where you live, uh, your name, stuff like that. And the problem is that it's really easy to, like, get this information, especially on the darknet. And so, that, that you know, a group from Harvard did this study where, like, they just kind of, like, Quantify the cost of how much it is to look into and to just purchase either voter roll information, which is sort of publicly available information that local election officials like will give to campaigns and folks. And for like 30 bucks, you can buy like, you know, voter rolls, which includes people's addresses, names, stuff like that. And if, you know, this information from Equifax, which may include uh, driver's licenses, certainly does include social security numbers, gets out there, there is a concern that you know, mass changes can happen. Now, the Secretary of State's website says they have safeguards in place. There's things like they can track web logs. They can prevent multiple changes from the same IP address from happening. There's a variety of things that they're doing to try and prevent that from happening. They also made the point that, like, once people have this information, it's not necessarily an online thing, and there's probably more safeguards online because you can do all the stuff with IP addresses. And with logs, you can't do with paper applications. And they said they've never had this happen. Um, the Department of Homeland Security last week issued this report saying, like, Russian hackers try to get into 21 states' electoral systems, Nevada was not one of them. So, like, there's no evidence of this happening yet, but the fact that this information is out here is concerning, and it's especially concerning for, like, primaries and caucuses, things where, like, you have to be registered of a certain party to participate, True. and there's so, so low turnout already that, you know, a swing of 1%, 5%, 10% could have, like, just a massive effect. So it, it's something that I don't think isn't on people's minds 100, percent but I wanted to write about it because I thought it was you know super interesting it could have really big impacts both in 2018 and 2020.
0: Yeah, and like you mentioned, you know a lot of those primaries are just in the thousands of votes, you know, so you could easily, you know, for for however much money, you know, change that voter registration and potentially, you know, make make a difference there if someone wanted to, or that's at least the concern.
1: Yeah, you can you know make someone register to live in a different congressional district right. or a state senate district. You could you know give them an absentee ballot when they didn't ask for one. Right. There's a ton of stuff to do, and a, a fun aside. I don't think I've mentioned this. In anywhere but like just to like speak of like how basic data privacy was before like prior to 1998 there's a guy in minnesota who figured out like Nevada based their driver's licenses based on your social security number, like times two plus a certain number. Oh no! So, so you could
0: just figure out what it would be if you had the social yeah. Security so once you have or that, or vice versa. Yeah,
1: um, and you know, like obviously that information isn't easily accessible. And I don't know if there was like much of a darknet presence pre nineteen ninety eight. If I'm wrong, I'm sure I'll hear about it on email or Twitter. But you know, having that information and like people don't really think about that, but having it so easily available is it's kind of worrisome.
0: Right. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on all of that and you know all the all the voter registration security measures and you know obviously upcoming changes to the the electoral process as all this progresses um, on the nevadaindependent.com how many times can we plug the website in uh, one podcast i think a lot over <laughs> under was 7 <laughs>
1: <laughs> nearly there are
0: we are we there the the last thing i wanted to talk about before i ask you guys to preview what you guys have coming up over the weekend and next week i wanted you to preview something that's happening on monday monday jackie we got sort of an an inkling of some gubernatorial announcements that might be coming up yes yeah, Going
2: on? <laughs> both of them are pretty long-awaited, uh, one more so than the other. Uh, we got word from both Attorney General Adam Laxalt and Clark County Commissioner Chris Junkiliani. I think I pronounced that yes. correctly, yeah, that uh, they both have scheduled uh, quote-unquote special events on Monday. Uh, we're thinking it could be an announcement about the gubernatorial race, uh, as widely speculated, Laxalt's probably the most likely to jump in as the Republican contender, and uh, and then Chris G. has uh, been mauling a bit as well, pretty publicly. Um, I think she's told some folks that she's about 99 per- 99.9% in, mm. but she was just trying to really do her du- due diligence and travel across the state and meet with some folks to really cement that decision. So they both have events scheduled Monday. Uh, Adams is in the morning. Chris is in the evening. Um, and it'll really, you know, if they both do enter as kind of expected at this point, it'll really... Make the inter- the race a lot more interesting right now. Um, obviously, uh, Steve Clark County Commissioner Commission Chairman Steve Tisalak entered in June. He was the first to do so, and then several weeks ago, uh, State Treasurer Dan Schwartz, a Republican, announced that he was running as well. Uh, so, with the entry of potentially Laxall and Chris G, who are both you know a little bit more, not quite as moderate as their potential opponents, um, it'll. Create some interesting dialogue going
0: forward, <laughs> right? Well, and like you were saying, you know, there's this isn't new. We sort of expected that, you know, that the attorney general would jump into this race. You know, some someone else is running for his seat. You know, there's there's sort of a everything's been a been sort of you know bubbling up over the summer, but nothing's been you know a, official yet. And and like you mentioned with with Commissioner Junquiani as well, you know, she's been sending these handwritten notes right to mm-hmm. legislators, asking them for their feedback and saying she's considering a bid. So neither of these come as a as a complete surprise, but um, it's certainly going to make it interesting since you have a, a primary now on both the Republican and Democratic sides.
2: Yep. And, uh,
0: you know, especially, uh,
2: well, I mean, they're interesting in both sides, but on the Democratic side, you know, uh, Commissioner June Kiliani and Chairman Steve Sisolak sit just a few seats away from each other while governing the county. So that'll be a a fun dynamic to watch play out over the course of the uh, primary campaign.
0: Right. So, I mean, it seems like most of our races are filling in. We either have an idea of who's running in a lot of these seats and are just waiting for the official announcements to come, but but a lot of them have sort of been uh, lines in the sand have been drawn. So we'll have to see how that all shapes up. Um, what do you guys have coming for the for the weekend, you guys? I'm working on a story today. Um, it's sort of a
2: hybrid business and education story. Um, it's about the construction workforce out here in you know, Basically, the bottom line is that the construction industry feels like there's been a little bit too much of a push to get students to attend college and get that four-year degree. Um, their point is that we have a lot of in-demand uh, construction jobs that pay very decent wages, but yet there's just not as much awareness, and they're struggling to fill those positions. So they're actively trying to recruit and campaign to get younger people
0: excited about those careers. <laughs> Very good. And what do you have coming up for either this weekend or the coming week? What are you Um, keeping an eye on? Well,
1: coming up for me, you, myself, and our colleague Michelle Rindell's all worked on the story about CHIP funding, uh, Children's Health Insurance Plan. It's this federal-state partnership that provides insurance to low-income children below, like, those who make a little bit too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but it gives them, like, a cheap way to get health insurance. The federal funding for that runs out tomorrow, and Congress has not authorized a renewal of that funding yet. Nevada has a, a, enough funds that I think they give the money out in, like, these, like, year-long chunks. So no one's going to run out of money, like, starting tomorrow. But there are states that, that you know, are facing, like, cliffs in terms of funding. Like, Minnesota sent out a letter that they're out of funding after September 30th. We're mm-hmm. due to be out of funding somewhere in, like, November, December. The state's very concerned. Uh, Governor Sandoval's very concerned. He sent a. a uh, a statement through the National Governors Association, which he chairs saying, like, you know, this is really important. This affects up to 9 million children across the country. There is sort of, like, the broad contours of, like, a deal in D.C. right now. Uh, Senator Orrin Hatch from Utah and Senator Jeff Merkley from Oregon um, kind of agreed on, like, a five-year funding extension. But they have to find, like, where they're getting the money from. It's going to cost anywhere from, like, 5 to $10 billion. And they have to get it through the House, which has, like, its own bill. And they're kind of working through all that. And then we have tax reform You know, um, they might try and stick another like Obamacare repeal as part of this. So there's a lot of moving questions. And the longer they wait, you know, the um, individual state programs that run the CHIP program are going to have to start sending letters saying like, you know, we don't have funding past like a couple more weeks. It, it, it's super, mm-hmm. um, you know, interesting and important. So we'll have that out tomorrow.
0: Yeah. And um, like you mentioned, I, I talked to the State Department of Health and Human Services a little bit before we tape this podcast. And they just recently ran the numbers. And so they think that we'll have enough money for the CHIP program through the end of December, but they can't guarantee beyond that. So they're, they, you know, have contingency plans. They, they've said, you know, this has happened before where we've, you know, known that CHIP funding was up for reauthorization. And we're sort of in a in a quandary about, you know, is it going to be reauthorized or not and continue plans were developed then but the word the official I talked with used was we're hopeful that you know this funding will come through and that you know we won't have to turn to these other contingency plans and you know at the very least they've said that their goal is not to cut coverage from anyone they would like to find the funds to continue coverage for everyone should this sort of worst case scenario of the federal funds not being reauthorized um, happen so people can look for that on on the website over the weekend um, check out uh, the ongoing developments with that with that I think that's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast um, thanks to my colleagues Riley Snyder and Jackie Valley uh, for joining me uh, we want to know what you think about our podcast so if you have ideas, criticism or even praise email us at ideas at com. and please check out our site if you haven't already one more time thenevadaindependent.com um, also be sure to rate us on iTunes and subscribe you can also find us on Google Play as always, many, many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer who makes us all sound podcast, podcast smooth. smooth. Good job, good job. I'm glad it's a thing. <laughs> I'm Megan Messerly. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week.
1: The two-week coup continues with no editors on the podcast. Do what we want. Yeah, no rules. Um, 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 um,
0: um, 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 um